Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome to Tent Talks. I am the Reverend Natasha Beckles. I am an Anglican priest within the Diocese of London. I am part of the Compassionate Communities team. And I'm passionate about children and young people, about the intergenerational gift that is the local church. And I'm particularly interested in helping schools and churches work well together to spiritually, pastorally and practically help children and young people. In last week's episode of this series on interrupting serious youth violence, we heard from educational thought leader Rachel Clark. Episode three will focus on power and privilege. And this week we will hear from Leroy Logan, one of the most senior black police officers in the Met Police, whose life and experiences within the Met were captured in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series, which is currently still on BBC iPlayer. So today we are going to be looking at privilege and power and the role that privilege and power plays, the dynamic that it plays um, into, into this narrative. Yeah, Natasha, do you, want, do you want to kick us off? When you hear those words, what's the first thing that kind of starts coming to mind on this topic? In relation to this, I was linking it to the previous session, which was talking about belonging and education. Once children are being kicked out of school, they're exposed and they're at risk to all sorts of dangerous groups of people who are not just, you know, a a bunch of, you know, people perhaps imagine gangs as a bunch of kids just walking around. No, that that is just a group of young people together and we have to be dealing with our own biases as to why we're looking at that group. I want to talk today about organised crime organized crime that is a business model that exploits vulnerable young people, children, grooming them in to debt bondage and abuse, trauma that will include violence, including sexual violence that will scar those young people. And how that abuse is being upheld by privilege and power. Mm-hmm. Privilege of people who are have access to financial resources that mean that their recreational drug use is fueling the abuse of young people in our city and up and down our country. Yeah. It's um, upheld by something called County Lines, which is... Basically, the transport network that captures young, vulnerable people who have not been properly maybe set up from their homes, not being well cared for by their institutions like schools in that rejected space are being groomed into running drugs up and down the country. Camden Council and their rescue and response team are weekly, daily picking up young people from all over the country who have been stopped by the police, who have been found in trap houses and trying to bring them home and trying to triage them. Children, young people who have gone missing, you will have seen adverts, this young person has gone missing. That is part of a network that leads all the way to recreational drug use going on in wealthier parts of our city and country. Today's the day that we want to talk about that because we need to be praying about it. We need to be recognizing our part in it, that the blood that is being spilled and cries out to God on our streets drains into a white line that people are sat in parties, sniffing up their noses. Let's be explicit. And the fact is, these are class A drugs. And if you do not come from a family that has that kind of income, you cannot use that stuff. So it's not coming from the poorest end of our community. It's coming from privileged use 
and we need to face it as church because some of that use is even in church. Let's be real about that because we are getting Jesus on Sunday and some of us work in really um, high-powered roles. But let's also be real about the fact that even some of the caring communities, the um, professions, because of the stress level that they're under, people are making ways to find ways to numb that pain. And that can range. We know if you know anything about numbing pain or listen to Brene Brown, that can be everything from how you eat, what kind of foods you eat. It could be all the the practices you have that um, stop you from feeling pain. But eventually there comes a point where people are using alcohol to keep them operating. You know, some some of our high-flying professionals work ridiculous hours. Then there comes a point as to how they are maintaining that. And then there comes a point that emotionally you're burnt out and empty. And the only way you can feel anything is by making use of recreational drugs. So I, I don't want to come at this from a oh, this is a bad somebody out there. This is uh, something that happens. There'll be people who are hearing my voice who know that they went to a party and saw this. Yeah. So that in the toilet, a colleague of theirs is using this stuff. And we today want to make that connection between that use and our young people dying on the streets and our young people being um, enticed in because of their poverty into earning 200 pounds just to jump on a train and jump off and drop stuff off and unfortunately sometimes going missing sometimes being raped beaten and that we as a community will reap the whirlwind if we do not intervene yeah that's right that's where we're starting people let's go there and there's stuff to pray about what do you want to know about that well yeah i think i think it's important as well that you um you touched on that point you know we're not speaking about we're not trying to demonize individuals um in this you know Ephesians 6 it talks specifically about that it's not against flesh and blood but we're talking about the powers of the principality so the systems and the structures of our society on every level that impacts and add to this kind of straight line that we see between recreational drug use um and and the death of young people I think that's, Um, that's a great place to start you mentioned powers and principalities that's from Ephesians we we need to be thinking about and really coming to understand the political nature of our world and that God is aware of that political nature and is addressing it and that as Christians we are called into that and there there will be narratives where people are like oh no you know this sacred secular divide and Mm -hmm. that starts that's one of Martin Luther version one one of his less helpful um, commentaries, <laughs> which, you know, makes this divide as if God, the, the sacred and the secular are separate, as if your private faith and your public faith are separate. It's nonsense. Jesus is very public about his faith. And we know that he went away and was private with God too. And he lived that. And if you're saying that you want to live that life of Christ, we need to take seriously what that means on a day-to-day basis. And in this particular issue, this is where we've got to go mm-hmm. because I'm, and, and I'm not making it lightly. You know, you can contact, you do not believe me, contact the Rescue and Response. It's a pan-London team who were drawn together they've just been given an additional year's funding to continue because we're in the middle of a pandemic and if you think the situation was bad before oh my gosh it's continued we've got young people disappearing I can tell you stories of young people I have taught and written letters for you know if we wanted to go into how that privilege works together we can do that you know I can think of I want us to move away from just thinking that you know it's just groups of this ethnicity or that. We have South American organized crime. We have Turkish. We have Bangladeshi. We have mm-hmm. we have every example of organized crime. I do not think that we do not have white UK versions of that because mm-hmm. if you're outside of London, generally the and, and other uh, major centers of London, that diversity changes. 
So this abuse is all over the place. And it's people are making maybe 0.8 of a million, 800,000 pounds for each line that they run, going up from Kentish Town out to Hampshire. Anyway, when you see where they're picking the kids up, Hampshire, there's one of the the lists that they gave, they showed me, and honestly, of the 13 places this was going on, that young people are regularly being picked up from, um, saved from trap houses. Trap houses are um, maybe a flat that's been taken over of a vulnerable person, someone with special needs, or um, has just come out of prison and is vulnerable in some sort of way. People are using their house to take drugs, use drugs. A young person is put in that place and told to stay there. Sometimes they're not fed. Um, They may be assaulted there and they are giving a a telephone number. They're threatened in ways that mean that, you know, if you don't do this, I will hurt somebody in your family. Mm. And, And the people that, you know, they're in contact, the police can sweep those people up. You're not getting to a multi-million and plus network unless you're realizing you're you're picking up the small people and we're criminalizing those small people rather than dealing with the issue and if we really get deep about it to make cocaine you need chemical resources that you cannot buy unless you have got some serious money Mm. you can't even move that stuff And so we need to be talking about how these principalities are in our industries and organisations. And we need to be thinking more deeply about how we're doing it. It's cheap and easy to pick up some kid on the street. He he or she is the bottom end of that narrative. And for every boy that's involved in that situation, there's at least three girls that may be affected by that. And we need to know that we are in parties We're not in those parties right now. But trust me, the drug trade has not stopped. Um, I I went to visit my mum. I've had to contact her housing agency to let them know that people are using your outdoor electricity boxes to hide stuff in those dustbins, all sorts of stuff going on. But that lets you know that there are people who are continuing and they've got the money to do it and you don't have to see them and the, you, you don't have to see that narrative it just gets delivered to their door it's no harm no bad and we're very distant from the trauma it causes in in mothers and families lives here in London and and we need to end that as um, yeah. people previously said it's one world we live in yeah, absolutely. I think so often the church can feel very, very removed, very removed from this. And yeah, I think scripture makes it very clear that we are to challenge these kinds of powers, um, these structures and these systems. And it says in that Ephesians passage of this dark world, kind of as you were just talking about, Natasha, like these things thrive in darkness and these things thrive um, when God's people turn their, turn their face from them or say that's not a whatever I am issue. That's not a, my problem. Yeah, and it moves up even from marijuana, weed, however people want to describe it. It moves up from that, and and it's understanding that you know us closing our eye to that that and not fight contending that with that battle for our young people mm. who are in a position that may have extra money to do all of these things. Mm. It is really leaving people in vulnerable, vulnerable places, and we need to do something about that. And it's it's absolutely understanding. This is a battle that is not against flesh and blood. I'm, I do not want to criminalise somebody because they have an addiction. Some of us here have seen that situation. It's painful to watch somebody you love go through that. It's rooted in shame. It's rooted. And, and we need to learn as church how to deal with that. It's not. It's a real part of it's in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> you know, that fig leaf. Yeah. It's, from, it's the, the, the very beginning that when we have issues with God, we don't take that to Jesus but there are some drugs that we're allowed to take and it's socially acceptable the other day I was listening to a news uh, a magazine tv discussion and the person was trying to say and it's very privileged guys trying to say why can't we just legalize cocaine and all Mm -hmm. of this stuff and and maybe there's an argument that it would fix it but right about now I'm I'm not going to say that I buy that argument because 
I mean, it, yeah, it has the potential to fix one part of the problem, perhaps, but the greater issue that we have a society that needs to medicate themselves just to get through the day, that's the bit, you know, that's that the bit of that issue that gives permission for that to be how we, how we carry on. And you know what? Jesus doesn't call us to this and church should be screaming loud, loud, loud. Yeah. This is not who we are. We yeah. have a, a, a Christ who died for us. You're supposed to be nailing those things and people have to, to the, that cross mm-hmm. and it, we are supposed to be this people who know how to repent and be repenting on behalf of uh, a whole community and bringing these things to God and and you know what it has to be church we have to be doing our work ourselves yeah there's nobody's buying this from us nobody's buying the power of the cross and the power of who Jesus is unless you are nailing that issue to Christ and I this yeah. is Lent. This is the time to be really addressing that issue because the longer it takes for us to take these issues, we leave mothers to bury their only children. And it's happened in our parish. It's happening regularly in our community. And you cannot sit there and on one side read, read what it says in the Bible and then read the newspaper and see that. And either disparage that community as being you know, dysfunctional, ignoring the structural issues that are going on and failing to see how we participate in the abuse and dehumanization of people in a, why are we talking about this going on? This is about modern slavery. Why are we talking about what's going on in other parts of when, you know, my mother used to say to me, how can you love God in heaven? The Bible passage. How can you love God and not love me before you? And this situation that we want to go out and do mission and do all of this stuff, start your mission by doing something about that habit, being the person that challenges the environment that when people think it's okay to take cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking back to my to my life and my experience, I just thought this was a huge revelatory moment for me. What my role might be now going into going into parties and going into places yeah so much more that I would I would love to talk about but unfortunately I think we, we're gonna have to wrap it up there you know we've not we've not come out with any answers necessarily um in this time but it's just part of the the reason we're doing these podcasts is just to raise awareness to get people thinking to get us all as the church thinking about these issues as as our issues you know God has given us power and authority amen um to speak into these things but also to bring transformation and change through the transformation and change of ourselves so I guess our encouragement is to take this away to bring this to God you know you might not have an addiction to cocaine you might have a friend who does but our addictions take different different forms and different shapes and they and they blind us to the things going up going on outside so yeah lots lots to be taking away lots to be thinking about Listeners, today I'm joined by Leroy Logan. Leroy Logan is a dear friend, a lunchtime partner from time to time. <laughs> um, is, he is one of the UK's most highly decorated and well-known black police officers. He's a founding member and a past chair of both the Met and National Black Police Association, the BPA. He's a highly respected and well-regarded commentator on policing and wider social justice issues and he really believes that there's still much work to be done in creating a more equitable and fair criminal justice system. Uh, Much of Leroy's early career was depicted in Red, White and Blue, a a Golden Globe winning episode by the director Sir Steve McQueen, his series on small acts. If you haven't seen it, please do look it up. It is excellent. You can get it on is it, it where is it now? Is it on BBC or is it's, it on Channel 4? Yeah, it's on BBC iPlayer and so, uh, Amazon Prime. On BBC iPlayer and Amazon Prime. So if you get a chance, please do look up the Small Axe series. Since his retirement, you published a uh, autobiography, Closing Rank, My Life as a Cop. And you've used your decades of experience to, you know, really engage the different parts of society, different parts of third there are different parts of our society to to really think about how our policing service works and you've, I know you've had a busy period because we've just recently had a report out 
that has ha had some very powerful reflections on the Mets. So I've asked you on, Leroy, today to share your wisdom about privilege and power and how much I'd love to hear you talk about the, the history of street crime, but also think about, you know, the dynamics of privilege and power and how they impact certain communities over others. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for the invite. It's really a pleasure to you know, talk about some really important and critical issues that's been impacting our communities and our neighbourhoods, our streets for many decades. Yeah, and as you say, it, it's all around the power dynamics between the haves and the have-nots. I suppose in a lot of ways, people feel having less means, less options, and there's a tendency to take a bad option or everything else seems futile, not condoning bad behaviour. But sometimes you can, you have to be in that person's shoes, as it were, to understand why that person has uh, made that choice. So that brings me to the start of what I see as this tendency to gravitate as peer groups. You know, street crime is invariably a collection of individuals and street violence is where three or more people are in concert to commit a crime, whether it's a robbery or inflict violence on someone, invariably some form of retribution or feud. Yeah, I suppose there's that basic dynamics about how most people come together in a positive way. Unfortunately, there are those who come together with, uh, as I say, malice aforethought and have a tendency not to understand other people's point of view or their feelings because of the injury or hurt you've inflicted on them. I mean, you can go as far back as the triads. You know, they, they were a very culturally rich group of people in Japan who really showed the importance of that peer group. A lot of it was negative, based on violence, organised crime on a massive scale. So it's, it's nothing new. That dates back centuries. But of course, getting back to the more contemporary gangs that we've seen developing, especially post-war, post-Second World War Britain, has really been a phenomenon about deprivation and exclusion and uh, feeling a sense that they do not feel they've had a, uh, a reasonable chance to achieve their true potential. You know, the schools have never been seen as a, an option. And, and so you, you've seen negative peer groups come out, emerge out of urbanly deprived areas. You, you, invariably, you don't see that collection of people with crime as the central point from affluent areas. I mean, they do do it, but they do it on a totally different emphasis. It's normally that they will be the head of a group of people who are doing their activities on the street. We, we saw that emerging from, as you already touched on, the craze and the McDonald's and all these big high reputation people who felt that violence was a be all and end all to getting respect and perpetrating their crimes to hold people to account by fear. And so you, you, you saw an example where um, brothers fuel each other's anger. Invariably, they've been exposed to one form of adverse childhood experiences to another, whether it be violence. Um, they've seen violence inflicted on family members, domestic violence, etc. It's the war attrition. Only the strong survive. The best form of defence is offence. You get in first, don't take any disrespect from anyone. And so you live in this sort of uh, war of attrition and it is constantly on alert. You're constantly having to fight your corner. When crime comes into it, drug supply to get that sense of achievement, wanting to get respect from people. So you, you want to be driving the fast cars or you know, having the the gangster glamour. And I suppose that's all uh, been heavily put across by music. 
you know, the bad boy image. And most music has always had a role in it, though, because you can look at rock and roll and there is a kind of that history of people having a a form of music that allows young people to express themselves in a particular way. And I think also there is the fact that these are young people, so their brains are still growing. There's a lot of hormones flying about. There's a lot of risk taking behavior that or behavior that doesn't have the wisdom that you'd expect from an adult to know that actually jumping on a motorbike, you know, while under the influence is definitely going to end up with some sort of problem at some point, you know, and the the willingness to take those kind of risks around stuff is part and parcel of being a younger person and not having that necessarily the wisdom to to try all of these things out in a particular way. I found it really useful for, you know, listening into what you're saying as you talked particularly, and I want to focus in on what you said about kids growing up in situations where there is violence in the home or there's violence in the local community. And this is part of the reason that you have to come out, quote unquote, air quotes, strong, strong enough to protect yourself from being bullied, strong enough from that. And, and what I do see that as a link that for some young people just walking around in their local community is a risk because they can be targeted whether male or female that can be sexualized in whatever way it can be about humiliation and shame and you know what our ability as a community as a police service to even help those young people that feel that way and if they don't feel helped well they take that into their own hands as well yeah, so you know that that trauma lives with them, and, and and their assessment of risk and how to deal with that risk is totally different from someone who's not traumatized in that way. Invariably, it's fight, not flight, and not having any sort of empathy or or a sense of understanding of the pain and hurt. So, from being a victim of violence or seeing violence they become the perpetrator um because of a lot of the unresolved hurt and how they've processed that or not processed it not processed it invariably internalized that uh, and and, i think it's an issue uh, around compassion as well because if you are victimized and you don't have you're not fully connected to what that trauma did to you you actually lose a bit of your humanity towards other people and that that that's what creates the ability for you to be lacking in empathy towards other people. So that not not having experienced that being held in the right kind of way is real a real issue. And uh, you know you, you've got to uh, understand that parenting has a key role to that. You know if you've got positive, uh, a loving, nurturing environment where they help you to rationalize and focus you know and reflect on things that in a way helps you to make the right sort of choices and and that's from understanding education is a key work ethics your peer group who you choose your friends wisely as they say you you can know a man or woman by the friends they keep and and of course having a sense of purpose and identity because especially when it comes to gangs where three or more people are in concert in with some criminal activity a lot of this identity they, they can identify themselves by dressing a certain way um tattoos tattoos can have these um trick points you know these logos that identify them with uh, a certain group of people that cultural identity is very strong and very compelling so it is very big it is for every yeah. community, though, because it's like we have our mirror neurons that draw you towards people that are you are like or you want to be like. And in being drawn towards that, you your seek, young people are seeking belonging. Adults are seeking belonging. I mean, this is what fo- what happens in a football team. There is, you know, the, just the even fans. There is a sense of belonging that can be created in those particular spaces. So it's a very human need but just in a very young person who may not have the support systems around them to help them make the best choices. 
Earlier you were talking about, you know, this criminality happens in disadvantaged spaces. One of the questions that were raised around privilege and power, if there was no supply, there would be no reason for some of the kind of drugs dynamic that's there. And if you're growing up in an environment where there's not a lot of money, you don't have the money to buy class A drugs like cocaine. You might be able to buy cannabis. But you're not able to buy that. And, you know, I'm really obviously you are the expert in, on the call as to what that's about. But when we look at the kind of criminality that's focused on particular groups of people, what, what can you say about the fact that it, that criminality is not evenly shared? It's not equitably shared, given that there's, a, there's groups of people who have the money to buy class A drugs. Individuals are in there that sort of white collar crime is normally about economics. Invariably, it's more subtle, it's more sophisticated. But if they are going to drug um, supplies on a major scale, they're, they're not getting their hands dirty. They recruit people who act as their quartermaster. Um, they will be, recruit the um, individuals who are able to run drugs um, from A to B, they can store them, um, also the weapons that go with it. Invariably, women are used in that front uh, as well, and they're sexually exploited as well on top of that to keep the control. And as I said earlier, the, the, the charisma of these quartermasters, the people who run the streets and do the recruiting and the distribution are very compelling individuals. They're very charismatic. They hold the attention. They're able to convince vulnerable young people still in a puberty, not really developed to any form of real maturity, to think, well, your parents don't understand you. Teachers can't educate you on the streets. Police hate you. I'll be your family. I'll be your father, your mother, your teacher. And they have this sort of, sometimes even a messianic mm. sort of appeal. So these youngsters actually will replicate them and, and invariably protect them. I remember when, um, even when I was a sergeant in the 90s, you know, you would be stopping youngsters with four, five thousand pounds cash in their pockets. Where'd you get that? Well, I got it from my mum. Well, we know your mum is holding down two jobs and she doesn't get that amount of money. Mm. And why aren't you in school? You know, and these sort of um, things were regular because, you know, they were holding cash for some people. They were earning the cash as well. And they are quite they vulnerable because if they handed oh, over that money, means that they end up in some serious financial risk and, yeah. you know, jeopardy, risk of, of harm because they've handed over that money. So they're, they're looking to tell you that narrative for a reason yeah yeah um well, i mean you have to put them at ease if you try and go hard and strong into them you won't get that information if you don't appeal to their humanity and understand the dynamics and the cultural identity that goes with it they won't relate to you uh, mm -hmm. so if you get that information you you know invariably it leads up to uh higher in the pecking order of that group and I remember um, the county lines were start to build yeah. at this stage. Just to tie it down, this is the late 90s. And at the late 90s, this was the time when uh, crack cocaine swamped Europe, in particular this country, because we're mm. the gate. In those days, we were the gateway to Europe. And all of a sudden, you had easily concealable, easily transferable, high markup commodity which lent itself perfectly to the street gangs. A lot of it was done innocently by negative peer groups who think, well, we're just going to run a few shots and done, not realising once they get into the grips of the quartermaster on behalf of Mr or Miss Drug Baron, they're then gripped. Uh, and so once you've been tithed into that situation, physically, mentally, and spiritually, you are in no way 
uh, or in, in no position rather to get out of it if you're still living in that same location. So you know that that's all the sort of contextual safeguarding piece coming in. How how does that person operate? How do they you know um, get out get out of that? And invariably, if in the same peer group, in the same location, you're going to be in the same grip of the people in control, the fear factor. And so you will do what you're told. And if they can't get a hold of you, if you decide to stray, they will get your, your friends and your family. It doesn't stop there. So from identity, understanding, rapport, it becomes fear, domination, and possibly violence on them. So they are then playing this out as well. And it becomes the norm. Even in the 90s, uh, when you start to see crack cocaine being distributed by young people, you start, as I said, you catch them with loads of cash. They're really hardened individuals from 14, maybe younger. They believe that they have no value on life. They they don't care if they live or die. So they don't care about anyone else living or dying. Yeah. Uh, and, that can, and, it can be, and that could be their closest people, you know, their loved ones. In fact, they find it difficult to even talk about love because it shows weakness, vulnerability. Exactly. So they internalize a lot of this and they, they're living in the moment just to survive. And so if they get to their late teens, it's a result. My mind, theologically, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, who we choose as our God, you know, we become mm. that and that our natural human disposition is, it's not a case of, whether you worship is what you worship as a human condition. And as we look to, to find things to worship, if we're not worshiping who God is, we are worshiping, you know, your parents. If it's not them, it's, you know, the society or the community or the people that, that help to, to make you feel protected in some sort of way. And as they are idolizing people who have wealth, those kind of luxury marks of the car, the clothes, all of these aspects, if that becomes the 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 focus of what you want to be and what you want to come and become. And there is an aspect that the culture, culture is created by the environment that people are in. And if we keep having people in circumstances where there, there is no other option that, you know, to eat, there is a food bank, to to be warm or to to have those basic aspects met from that comes a, a culture or a mindset that shapes that human being and as an educator you meet children as you say they're, they're at 14 and what they've been shown so far is part of the reason that their worldview is walked in that particular way whether it's disrespectful to older people or to women or to particular groups of people in some way shape or form a child is a sponge and then they're just pushing out what exactly they've seen now each child can do something different you you know you have you have your character you have what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do or what you're frightened of doing in that sense and that can be instilled in you by you know certain good personalities that might be around you at a particular time but I know having worked in Broadwater Farm I worked with children who did not want to be involved in any way shape or form but your older brother is telling you to carry this. And it's very, it's, it's for me, I feel it's cheap for us to be able to say, oh, speak truth to power. That's cheap. You can be throwing grenades from a distance. But to speak truth to those people that you love is one of the toughest things that anybody has to do. Mm -hmm. You know, we have leaders and mighty people all the time Corking at the, the the point where you have to have those difficult conversations with your grandparents or whatever about whatever issue that is going on in, in our time. But we are asking teenagers to be able to make that decision. And unless they have that kind of strength of personality, and sometimes that strength of personality only comes through partly because of the traumas that they go through you know, you, you realise that playing sweet wasn't going to to stop you from being assaulted, stop you from being um, exploited in some sort of way. And so that's what's part of the personality coming out. I, I can hear your compassion, you know, for the because you've got the detail around how it is that a young person gets to this particular point. But no matter what, they're hitting up against 
the law. They're going to be hitting up against um, uh, the institutions that are going to say to them, yeah, this might have been where you came from, but you don't have the resource for, you know, a parent to fight, get you the best lawyer to get you out of that situation. You don't have, you know, the family kudos or whatever that's going to help you in that particular way. You don't have the education to be able to know what to how to speak to a police officer how to to deal with those situations in the right way so you know there's a lot here in terms of how is it we might help um those young people that don't turn up to our churches necessarily have have grown up in these environments do want a way out but who will be there you know to be part of that solution because if they do put a foot wrong and end up with the in the police or in jail, their life trajectory thereafter is is going on a particular track as well. You know, it's, it seems really hard as to how it is that we can help. I, I fully take on that as an educator when schools fail, you know, we're excluding children without exploring what those issues are. We put them right into the hands of exactly this type of um, people. Well, that's the, that, that, that's the um, criminality pipeline or four to five times more likely to be involved in crime if you're excluded or in care or you come from a dysfunctional home and and that's that that's one of the things that really we should talk about and we have been um discussing it is the cause of the crime so you you got this whole matrix of, of issues you then lay on the music which they talking their experience their reality and, and i suppose in terms of current street violence you, you think about crime distribution of crack cocaine youngsters using that uh, as a means of getting out the poverty trap supplying money to their mothers invariably single mothers and and young man it on the streets is becoming the main breadwinner as well if they also have the the music that reinforces all of this and they're thinking, well, you know, man got to do what man got to do. I'm living the dream because their dream is so narrow and so warped and, and the music give them a sense of identity as well. So you've got the grime scene coming out of that uh, yeah. and that's moved all the way to drill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and in between, the, the music has been a, a way of settling uh, or bragging off, you know, they, they'll go and film a video on someone's turf, on their ends, as they call it, and bragging, yeah, I'm on your end, what are you going to do about it? And and so I'm not saying that the music is uh, the cause of violence, but it's a cofactor that can escalate those issues which we invariably don't. And then you have social media on top of that. So th- those sort of issues where uh, a small incident is totally blown out of proportion because of social media. You're going to let that man talk to you like that? All these sort of um, retributions get played out through the music, through social media, and certain channels, they used to be you channel or channel you, that used to play that sort of music. And I myself, uh, I, was, I was a superintendent by this time uh, back in Hackney, and I had to go down to channel you, and I said, listen, every time you play one of these videos, it has consequences on the street, which I have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. So you need to understand when you're playing this music, all right, you you, you have a certain amount of contract of, of censorship, but do understand the implications of what's happening. You know, I did some work with, um, and talk about the grime scene uh, with um, So Solid Crew, uh, behind the scenes. Young men from Stockwell uh, Estate came together with a strong identity to get out the crime and violence poverty trap. The music was the glue but some of them still couldn't extract themselves from what was going on mm-hmm. uh, on the streets. They, they were being pulled back. Sometimes they weren't getting any much money out of the music as they thought they would. The, the trappings of the crime and violence, even though their life expectancy is drastically reduced by going on that, um, and not only it's a media uh, on game. the streets yeah, or in the prisons, despite all those risks, as I said, they don't assess risk. In, in a way that um, someone who's not traumatised. So they, they will take the chances. Um, when I worked with So Solid Creole, I was, I was, you know, Mega Man, Ashley, all these sort of people, I, I was saying to them, listen, you don't understand that you might be doing great stuff on the stage, but you've got to deal with what's happening on the streets as well. Unfortunately, 
Mega recognised this, but he, you know, again, when they get uh, their nerves touched in a way that they feel the only way is to go and confront someone, and it happened that I think it was in um, early O's, very early O's, he went down to his old turf, confronted and someone. And ended up in a situation. Yeah, and someone had a gun, uh, and it's suggested that he ordered that person to shoot that person. Now, the perpetrator who, who killed that person with a gun got life, but Mega was um, accused Caught up of, in that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he went on the run. Anyway, he came back, uh, you know, gave himself up, and, and he faced uh, three mistrials. I actually gave character reference for Mega Man because everyone was just talking about he's a drug dealer, he's this, he's that, and... He might have had that in the past, but I saw a businessman when he mm. was trying to get the music scene, you know, uh, for a grime tune to be in the top 10 of the British charts in the early O's was some doing. And mm. he was able to market that, the clothing, um, you know, it, it was like, um, you know, he was a making of a, a entrepreneur. So I saw that and I gave evidence to say, this is what I've seen. And I'm not saying he can't commit that crime or he didn't say that scene. I'm just giving you another side of him because yeah. you won't be able to see that. Um, after two mistrials, the third one, he was found um, not guilty because I, I needed to give juries who normally, and that's the other thing, the, 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 the justice system and the jury system doesn't reinforce confidence in these young people. That's why invariably they get higher sentences than their white counterparts because yeah. they don't acknowledge or go guilty or acknowledge what they've done in any way until the very last thing or they're found guilty. And, and so you get the, the, the strongest and, and toughest sentence. That is reinforced by the type of policing they're going through. So if they, if they are saying, well, you know, they're tough on police, why would I trust the wider justice system? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so doing that um, character reference for Mega Man, I, I, I think helped him to understand there is a way of helping others in that respect in that regard and, and i know he's doing a lot of work around that there, there is that very very strong complex and i'm not a, you know an expert in the nuances of this but I, I i just talk about how it plays out in the street and how churches i believe really can play a role this uh, is what we want to get to yeah, and, and what can the, faith in, the, the, the faith in action, I believe, is sh- should be real, recognised real. You know, on, on road, those youngsters say real, recognised real. So if you're a tough guy, and invariably it's a guy, and you control things, and you can defend yourself, and you can inflict fear and um, control over others, and that power dynamic, you are real in their eyes. But that real can also be being authentic um, and not necessarily a drug baron or a, a, a gun runner or licking shots with drugs or whatever it is. You can be authentic in the sense of who you are, what drives you, your faith, etc. And I saw that play itself out when I, while I was still in Hackney, um, and I, one of the things I was trying to do is get into the causes of crime. How do we help them? What are the questions those young people are asking? How can we respond? And one way I did, um, other than working with street pastors and, you know, I, I would like to think quite progressive uh, church collaborations, I brought it over a group of American outreach evangelists, really. And they're very young. They're in their teens and they're called TRUCE. And TRUCE stands for To Reach Urban Communities Everywhere. And they had their own music. It was based on rap, but it was gospel rap. But it was done in such a dynamic way that when they used it as an outreach tool, the music as an outreach tool, they were able to command the attention of even the most hardened of young and young people. And um, I saw what they had done in the States. They were uh, visiting, and I said, listen, I would love you to come back and do some work with us in Hackney and Waltham Forest. And because there was a lot of tip for tap between the Beaumont in Waltham Forest and Holly Street in Hackney and and various other groups. So anyway, Truce came over. And what they do is is like a hit and run. So they go into the estate. They play them God-inspired rap music. And it creates an atmosphere. I I mean, it is palpable. It really is. 
and and then they go around to each house and they drop flyers and say, listen, we're going to be holding a show in the next 20 minutes, come down. And by this time, the music and the beat, it's it's drawing people in. And what they do is, that, that, and it's just some speakers and that, that they've got their own sort of collective group of singers and dancers uh, and, and they and talk their testimony. And it only is over about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, because people's attention ain't that long. So yeah. it's going to be sharp, short. And as a result of that, they ask for a response. And we did that over a three-week period. Over 1,800 youngsters responded. Mm-hmm. And they were invariably younger ones, but even the hardened ones were looking at us. And remember, we were going in certain estates, Holly Street, uh, London Fields, Gascoigne Estate, uh, that's in Hackney, Beaumont, Chingford Hall Estate, you know, all these places. So you can't just go in there and say, right, we're just going to do an outreach because you may be outreaching people that are picking their shots, carrying their drugs, carrying their weapons. So you have to have that sort of understanding that we're, we're there to give people a sense of hope because even the most hardened individual sense the importance of hope. You can't forget uh, their humanity. Exactly. And, and that's the dichotomy, you know, that, that's the real sort of thing you have to navigate through. So we, we saw that response. That was in 2006. But what, one of the things that, that, that ministered to me was to have that real, um, that relevance, the church relevance of outreach. If it understands all of the things we've discussed, if it gives, uh, and not just a signpost to say, right, you can go to that church or you have to um, go on that course or whatever. No, you, you have to go on that journey with them. The, the real difficulty is the scale of it. You know, the, the, the number of young people get caught up on this stuff. They're such a young age. Uh, and now, count, especially during COVID, county lines was an exponential growth to get the church to do, I think, the, the relevant outreach work, they have to have the capacity and capability to do that and the cultural awareness and understanding. Absolutely. But I think, you know, people are doing a lot of evangelism. And then when it comes to the actual discipleship, they're not able to take apart aspects. I've been in churches where you're seeing young men of a particular demographic. And one of the first things that the person wants to say about them is, oh, you're really muscly. They don't understand that that muscled up, tooled up. Mm is an allergic response to the violence of your community. And so it actually needs to be understood and they need that support through discipleship about what Mm. that is. And that, I suppose, brings me to probably my last question around toxic masculinity. What Mm. what role do you think, if at all, does it have in these situations? And I suppose I should say what I mean by that is that a a form of masculinity that is is hyper-masculine wants to present particular roles for males and females, uh, project that onto particular men as uh, this is the way a man should be, and in a kind of way almost cutting them away from their own emotionality that they need for themselves and their ability to see themselves as fully human, you know, fully human as as, as people who have feelings, who are hurt by stuff rather than just repressing that down and expecting to to use violence, to use derogatory language in whatever way to help them feel that they are powerful and in their position. That's what I'm talking about in terms of that. Does that have a role to play in this landscape of poverty, of, you know, lost opportunities or lack of opportunities, of poor relationship with the police? What, what role do you see that playing? It's a massive role. I, I've been running, I started a charity called Voice Youth. A Voice stands for Voice of the Youth and Gender Empowerment to assist young people at year nine, so 14, 15 year olds, to know their rights and responsibilities, to develop positive peer to peer mentorship, and also to know they can change their environment and not become a victim of it. And part of that 100 hour VTEC Level 2 program which gives them UCAS points a year nine before they start the GCSEs year 10, talks about toxic masculinity and how it play, plays itself out and how it's so culturally immersed and it's reinforced in so many different 
sort of encounters I have. So they they get an excuse for what everyone's doing it. So, but you but you're doing it worse than everyone else. Well, I mean, doesn't matter. And then if those those sort of conversations uh, we would have with quite reasonable young people, you know, doing well at school or reasonably well, quite sound home backgrounds, etc. But the toxic masculinity piece is front and center. And I think they know they pick it up not only to dysfunctional role models in their communities and the friends they choose. You could also be talking about policing. Toxic masculinity is extremely prevalent within policing. policing. We're talking now within policing. Within policing, yeah. Look at what the Casey report published only last week. That is toxic masculinity. Yeah. You know the the, the the fact that mainly white males are perpetrating on a, let's say, a macro scale, and it used to be micro, it's on a macro scale now, to the extent that they don't know how many toxic males, like Carrick, who's um, done as a serial uh, rapist uh, and sexual predator, like cousins who kidnapped, murdered Sarah Everard, well, kidnapped, raped and murdered Sarah Everard, those are extreme examples but they are toxic males in an environment where they've been allowed to have safe havens to perpetrate their crimes and it's condoned by people so but that's what i'm saying about um, our young people they're watching us and you know you can come to them and say well you know that's wrong yeah but what they're doing in the police look at this thing they're a bigger gang than us they, mm. they some of them take our drugs some mm. of them take our money they're playing out their macho control and power dynamic in a way that the young people mirror them. And I'll give you an example. You, you may have heard about the, the, the gangs matrix. Yeah. And that's an assessment of risk and harm, assessed, you know, um, assessed mainly through tools of who the young people associate with, whether, and that is included on social media, what's the crimes they've committed in the past, uh, what crimes they're perpetrating now, and not necessarily gang-related. Lo and behold, um, it was, they've reviewed it a lot now, but majority were black men on the matrix. The white gangs were conspicuous by the absence. And they have a, a numbering system. So, you know, you, you get the um, the traffic light system, red, amber, and green. So red is high harm, high risk, dangerous individuals to green, low harm, less risk or uh, of violence and fear being used in what they do. And then you have some on ground zero or, or just on the margins. The young people heard about the matrix and it was a, a badge of honor to be on it until they realized if you're on the matrix, you, there's a good chance you could get done for joint enterprise because you are associated on the matrix with that individual who may have been done for murder, you're in the vicinity, you not necessarily have to be there at the time, you socialize with them, you are connected with them, and you're also on the matrix on that algorithm, lo and behold, joint enterprise. And so the young people are thinking, where is this going? And so they, they think they have to tool up in their own way. So they've got a point system how, you know, to stab someone or wet someone is four points, to go and do, you know, a rape as a form of... Um, Retribution. You know, not only retribution, but also, um, I forgot the term, like an induction. Initiation. You know, initiation, that's the word. You know, you go and rape or stab or shoot someone or whatever it may be on the instructions of the, as I said, the quartermaster, the main person uh, in that um, gang. So our uh, criminal network is starting to, to reflect what was they, meant they, to be they, set they, up as a legal way of doing this stuff. Yeah, and, and that's how they can legit, legitimise it. And, and that's when you start to see things are just flipping around in a way that how do you really make sense of it all? And, and, and this, the, the economy of scales of how things have moved on before you could be, have quite defined areas in deprived, urban, devalued areas. Now, they're all over. You know, they're in coastal cities, you know, very rural uh, villages or, or towns. That That's the thing. How do you now get that sense of working together, not only to deal with a crime, but the causes of crime. And, and that toxic masculinity is a key part of that. Yeah. It's a real key part of it. Because if you can say, well, don't expect anything from me, 
look what the police are doing. And they're supposed to be trained. They're supposed to be uh, set an example. They're supposed to be protectors. But a lot of people, including women and young girls, uh, women and girls are seeing they're not protectors anymore. They're perpetrators or predators. And when predators and protectors are in the same uniform, you have a dilemma. When are women and girls going to go to a police officer with confidence? They are a good cop. They're going to deal with my domestic violence. They're going to deal with that sexual offence I'm going through, or even you know uh, that minor form of toxic masculinity. They're going to think, why would I go to you? You have no relevance. You don't have my confidence. So why you know? And that's that's the thing that this case report. I, you know, that's why I'm still banging on against the the commissioner. Recognize the time is a defining moment. Acknowledge those systemic failures, institutional racism, sexism, misogyny, and homophobia. Recognize if you defend this, you're being defensive. The rest of the Mets can be defensive. The other police services are going to be defensive. Why the public's going to be defensive. And until such time you really acknowledge the scale of this, we're going to be talking about this in 25 years' time. And that's the real sad issue about it. But we can't be, we can't be discouraged. We can be disappointed, but we can't be discouraged because, you know, we've got a faithful God and he will not give us more than we can bear and he will give us health and strength to do this and work to, to, to you know, in a collaborative way that the Holy Spirit is going to work on this in a way that will make changes. I, and I really believe that, that there is a sense of expectation um, and I, whether it becomes a revival or not, but that sense of hope and expectation is key to this and to keep us um, active in a sustainable way. Leroy, I just want to thank you for giving of your time for just to have this conversation. Um, there's so much here and we will create an opportunity for uh, listeners to respond back um, in, in the different forms that they might want to do that. But thank you again for your time. And I hope you get another chance to have these, these conversations. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, as, as, as you said, we're, we're lunch partners. Uh, and, you know, I, I really value uh, your fellowship in, in so many different ways and, and very relevant ways. Um, I, I just want to say, if anyone wants to contact me direct, uh, they can uh, go through my website, LeroLogan.com or my Twitter account, Leroy Logan triple nine. Please don't report crime on my Twitter account. Uh, even though you see the nine oh nine, it you know it, it you know there's various ways to report crime through the Met website, etc. Or even dial nine oh nine. But yeah, you know I, I, I like to keep these conversations going, and I also do this thing called QCast. Um, it's um, a homegrown way of having conversations, and and continues on, and it's through a, a Christian brother. Uh, at Saint, where where I go to church, and um, uh, I, I'll just put a tweet on it, but I'm with QCast. So, um, what you know, if if you want to go to my QCast, you can get it on Apple Store. Go on the QCast um, app, and and let's have a wrap. Let's talk. All right. Well, God bless you, and thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye. Take care. This was episode three of Interrupting Serious Youth Violence. Episode four will focus on church and community and will include an explanation of the work of compassionate communities on this issue within the Diocese of London. Compassionate Communities is part of the Diocese of London. We exist to support and serve every church across the diocese in serving their communities compassionately. The practical love of God in action. Churches across the diocese offer 1,500 ministries of compassion to the communities that they are part of, works of service and acts of justice for every Londoner to encounter the love of God in Christ. Our key themes of work are caring for God's creation, mental health and isolation, refugees and asylum seekers, money, debt and food insecurity, housing and homelessness, safer communities for all young people and modern slavery. Please do check us out on the website. We can be found at Compassionate Communities London 
compassionatecommunities.org.uk. That's compassionatecommunitieslondon.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.